Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, Episode 6, Launching into Multifamily Real Estate. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today, our guest, Jonathan Twombly, the principal of Two Bridges Asset Management, goes into his story of growing a multifamily portfolio of 400 units. And he covers everything you need to know in breaking into multifamily, such as common mistakes to avoid, uh, one underwriting, how to build relationships with brokers the right way, unique value adds, and how to finance deals. This is a great episode if you're interested in getting into multifamily apartments. Here it is. So today we have Jonathan Twimbley, who's the principal of Two Bridges Asset Manager. He also is the founder of Multifamily Launchpad and has his own real estate podcast. Jonathan, how's it going today? It's great. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited. Would you mind giving our listeners just a couple of minutes background on yourself? I'll try to keep this as short as possible. I was a lawyer on Wall Street for 12 years altogether. Was really unhappy doing that. Had always been interested in real estate and just had some timing work out well for me where I actually lost my job after the, the great financial crisis. And I just right around that time happened to meet somebody who was starting a multifamily investment business who asked me if I'd join up with her in talking with friends about whether I should do this. A number of friends said, hey, if you do it, I'll invest money with you. So a bunch of stuff sort of came together at once. And that was how I initially broke into the business. So you know, now I'm focused on investing in you know, 100, 125 unit complexes in the Southeast and actually recently sold everything that we owned. So I'm kind of going for round two soon, but uh, we recently went full cycle and exited everything. So yeah. it's been interesting. Wow. That's, that's impressive. And what did you get to before you sold the whole portfolio of communities? So we had 404 units altogether by the time we got an offer that enticed us to sell. Okay. Nice. And what kind of like made you decide to sell in today's market versus holding on? I mean, obviously it's a hot market, but what made you decide uh, to sell it? Yeah, I mean, just the pricing that we were offered was extremely attractive. And my view of the market is that the risk now is to the downside, not to the upside. There's a lot more risk of, you know, losing out on a payday than there is on losing out on upside from not selling so or from buying at the right now. So I thought it made sense. Uh, to sell, you know, get my investors a, a nice return while I could grab it. And, and you know, it was good for the business to, you know, establish a track record to actually go through a full cycle. So there was a lot of things that kind of made it made it made sense. Yeah, I like that approach. I mean, call it conservative or analytical. It's a, it's a good approach to, you know, sell when when you feel it's the right time in the cycle. I'm assuming you've probably got that kind of mentality when you're purchasing an asset as far as a conservative approach to, hey, this this is a cash flowing asset or it can be a cash flowing asset without too much speculation involved? Yeah. I mean, my, my approach, I, I like to approach things conservatively from a, a couple of different angles. Like one is obviously, as you mentioned, sort of on the underwriting angle of things where you're looking in, trying to build in some kind of margin of safety into the purchase, right? And you know, where you, where you, you're getting something that you believe is below its intrinsic value, right? That gets harder and harder as you go through the cycle. So the second part of being conservative about it is when you're buying, right? It's, you know, you can, you can kind of approach things conservatively at the top of the cycle and then have the cycle work, work against you. So even though you do everything right, you can still get slammed, right? Or you can 
operate conservatively at an earlier point in the cycle and, you know, have the wind at your back, right? So like the further you go, the further you go off the cycle, the more and more conservative you need to be. And, and, and for most investors and most people who are, you know, in the markets, it tends to be the opposite. Like the, the further they go off the cycle, the more aggressive they become because they have to be to kind of make the numbers work and making the numbers work is always problematic, right? So it, they, they think they're being conservative, but they're, but they're not. So you have to get, you know, you can be more aggressive early on in the cycle when people are, are scared and there's a lot of blood in the streets and nobody wants to buy. But as you get, as the market gets hotter and hotter and hotter, you have to go the opposite direction of the market and, and get more and more conservative yourself. Yeah, that's completely right. Do you have any things that you see investors commonly exaggerate when they're looking at deals in this type of market cycle we're in? Where they, they want to believe like, you know, rent is going to increase at 4% a year for the next eight years. Are there any common things you see that they're a little aggressive on? So I, what I what I think a lot of people make the mistake of, there's a, there's a few common mistakes that people make. So one is assuming that the current great environment is going to continue for the entire time they hold the property and pay, pay for that great underlying performance. You know, so, so right now unemployment is like, the lowest it's been since 1969, people are paying for that. They're they're assuming that's going to go forward for the next five or 10 years as long as they hold their deal. Ironically enough, I don't know if you guys know this, so they keep on saying, you know, lowest unemployment since 1969. The month after that low point was recorded in 1969, the country went into a recession, right? So <laughs> it's, <laughs> so I mean, like the the low point of unemployment is the is the peak of the cycle. Right. It's when it's when unemployment starts. But the same thing with rent growth. Like people say they're they're underwriting with the the crazy rent growth that we've had for the last few years, as if it's going to continue. And like history shows that we have cycles where there's really strong rent growth, and then there's weak rent growth, and usually one follows the other. So you you can't make that assumption. So that's one assumption I I see people making. Another assumption I see people making a lot, which is a mistake is on their like on their exit cap rates right when they're trying to figure out what this deal is worth over time you have to figure out some sale price right and the way that you do that is you project your net operating income growth over time and then you apply a cap rate to it and you know what what people are taught when they're taught underwriting is that you for whatever cap rate you go in at so Mm -hmm. so you buy at an eight cap for every year that you hold it you add 10 basis points to that cap rate for your exit cap rate to account for the aging of the property, right? So that, that's standard kind of conservative, you know, underwriting. So if you exit after five years, you'd exit at an 8.5 cap. If you exit after 10 years, you're looking at a nine cap, you know, because the, the fact of the matter is you don't know what cap rate you're going to exit at because you don't know where the market's going to be at that point, but you, you make this, you make it more conservative. What I see people doing a lot is they're buying at the top of the market and cap rates are compressed. So maybe they're buying an asset that normally would trade at an eight cap for a six cap, right? And then on their exit, they're saying, oh, I'm being conservative. I'm going to exit in five years at a six and a half cap. That's really unrealistic. They should be doing that exit cap at an eight because given that you don't know what the future holds, you don't know where we're going to be in five years, anything could happen in the next five years. Like if you ask people in 2007, where would it be in 2012? They would have said, you know, the Dow would be at 40,000 and, you know, we would all be driving electric Lexuses to that fly. I mean, you know, like, so, so it's like, you don't know where you're going to be 
in five years. So what you should assume is that you're at the long-term average of whatever it is that you're buying. So right. if the long-term average of that asset is an eight, you should be exiting at an eight. And what you'll see if you go, if you take a lot of deals that you see people doing and you take their exit cap rate and you stick an eight on it instead just to see what it, how it works out, they're, they're losing money. I mean, it's not even, not only are they not like, not performing as well as they thought, like if they had to sell under those conditions or had to refinance under those conditions, right. they would actually be impairing investor capital. So that's that's another thing that I see a lot of people doing, but they're doing these things because otherwise the deals don't work and everybody's complicit in this. The banks are complicit, like everybody's complicit. It's I don't know if people are consciously lying to themselves or if they're all unconsciously lying to each other or what it is, but you're just seeing a lot of this at, at this point in the cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious that like, what are you focusing on now? If you if you think that the market is probably towards the peak, like what are you focusing? Are you still looking for multifamily deals, or are you sitting on the sidelines? So I am looking for very specific situations. Okay, right. So for instance, I I have clients who have really particular needs that may be driven by a special tax situation or something, where they understand where we are in the market and they're willing to to go in sort of very conservatively. They're not looking to hit a home run. They don't need to make a 20 IRR. They're realistic about things. They're looking to solve another problem. Looking for situations that work for things like that. But also really what I'm doing is preparing myself for the ne the next stage, right? So we know that what goes up must come down. It's gonna come down at, at some point, probably I think we're gonna get some reality in the next couple of years. So you know, if you wait until that point, to start the process of putting together, uh, you know, a business and a platform and an investor group, it's too late. So I'm working on putting that together now with people who share my philosophy and will be ready to to move at the time, you know, when the time is right. Yeah, that's that's a smart way to approach it. You spoke a little bit um, a few minutes ago about some of your criteria or, you know, looking at an undervalued asset as far as making the investment. Do you have any other like specific criteria or just examples of a criteria that you look at? Like maybe it's occupancy or maybe it's uh, a local market. Well, I, you know, I've, I focus, so I focus on the Southeast and the, the reason I focus on the Southeast is because I like the demographics down there. You know, you've had basically seven decades of uninterrupted movement into the region that, that shows no signs of abating. It's driven by, you know, by factors like the weather, you know, things that are really, that are really like not, not going to change, right. Unless something really dramatic happens. So, you know, you, I like markets that are growing. I like markets that are preferably growing faster than the national average. I like markets that have a certain size population, like, you know, at least 250,000 or so people in the MSA, just to make sure it's big enough and diverse enough and liquid enough. What else? I like markets that are, you get a little more granular, right? I, I, I mean, I, I stay away from markets that are like too heavily dependent on a single industry or a single employer. I like when you get a little more granular, I like good school districts. I think all things being equal, you know, good school districts where there's some kind of barrier to entry. Where you, the tenants that you get who want to be in those good school districts that they can't afford to buy in are really your best tenants, no matter where they fall on the economic spectrum, they tend to be the ones who are the most diligent and motivated. They're going to bend over backwards to pay the rent to make, you know, to make sure their kids can stay in the school. That, you know, that's why they're there. Right. So it's a better group of tenants, higher quality group of tenants, so no matter what their income is. 
and you know, I like I like anchors. What I call you know like um, things that never go away, things that things that are unaffected by the economy. So state capitals can be good anchors. You know they're never state capitals never going anywhere. Uh, ports, airports, inland ports, really big universities like the major main campus of a big state university can be a great anchor. Uh, or depending on the depending on the MSA, even a smaller college, if it's big enough, like a big college and a small MSA can be a really good anchor, things like that. So that's the kind of stuff I look for when I'm looking for like where to look for property. I yeah, love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great example. Jim and I were talking or we went to a meeting a couple of weeks ago and that was one of the topics about Charlotte versus other cities in the region. And it's, you know, even Charlotte versus Raleigh, like the airport we have, you can't just go duplicate that in another city. That's something that's here. And it's ironclad. You you literally can't go duplicate that in Raleigh. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, you you guys are in Charlotte, so you know, like the inland port down in the upstate in South Carolina, right in Spartanburg. You know that that can't just you can't pick it up and move it, right? Right. Like you can't you can't move an inland port. And then what happens when you have some some transshipment port like that, where you're like moving stuff from rail to truck? It starts to attract a lot of other distribution businesses right. around it that that need to do the same thing. Uh, and then there's the whole spinoff effect from that. So, you know, th those things are are great long term anchors. Now they they are, you know, since you're talking about business, if there is a recession, and then obviously like employment will kind of ebb and flow a little bit. But like you're you're never going to be in a situation like you could be with say like a military base where like the government could decide to shut the military base down anytime, yep. right? No matter what they say, no matter how no matter what they say about, and you hear it all the time, like blah, 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 military base, like it's going to be there forever because some congressman, blah, 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 you know, like that, I would not rely on that stuff. I avoid those kinds of markets. I don't consider military bases anchors because they could just be shut down at a, at a moment's notice. But stuff like an inland port is, is a major infrastructure that's not going anywhere. Yeah. I think that's something a lot of people should pay attention to because there's on paper, great deals in like more rural markets. And sometimes some people try to say, oh, it's, you know, it's two hours from the major city. I and mean, I don't know, for me, that's not close enough. And it sounds like for you, it's probably not close. What is like your proximity that you look for where it's like within that anchor? Well, I mean, so it's got to be within the MSA for one thing. So a, a lot of these smaller rural areas won't actually be within the MSA, right? So, or they, and they won't be near the anchor. Like, you know, if, if you want to talk about like an anchor, like say an inland port, I mean, you really have to be pretty close to it, right? It's not right. like, you know, 50 miles away is really, by the time you get there, like the economic effect is not going to be felt. And people aren't, because people aren't going to commute that far, right? You have to think about the fact that people want to be close to, the, to where they work, right? So if you're trying to get like the inland port and the spinoff from that, like you're talking about a fairly small radius, yeah. right? But almost every rural area in the United States is in decline population-wise, Right. I mean, people are moving. They have been again, like people have been moving from rural areas to the cities for 100 years or more. And there's no signs of that abating. Right. So the population is just shrinking, even in a place like South Carolina that has really strong population growth. The rural counties of South Carolina are shrinking right? because everyone's moving yeah. to the cities. So I stay away from from small towns and and rural areas for that reason. Now, it's not to say that you could never make money in a situation like that, but I think to make money in those situations, you have to go in at the absolute bottom of the market and you have to be like 
taking deals off people who are distressed. You know what I mean? Like you, they've got to be, you've got to be picking up these assets for pennies on the dollar to build in a big margin of safety so that you're still going to make money. And then, and then you want to like offload it when there's a big market frenzy, like right now and just get out yeah. while, while getting out is good. But buying, I've seen this a lot of times where people come to me and say, Oh, I've got this deal. What do you think? And it's like, you know, they're like, well, I should buy it cause it's an eight cap. And I'm like, yeah, but this is a tiny town and the population is declining and it's dependent on one chicken plant for everybody's employment. And an eight cap is, is really expensive for this deal, right? You should be, you should be buying this deal for like a 15 cap, right? But yeah, you're, you're smiling. Cause I think you, no, you, you, you know, something you've heard of a deal like this before, right? Well, but that we agree with that. And, uh, it's just, I've got family that's in the, in the chicken business in, uh, South Carolina. So yeah, that, that, hit a small town. that, that hits home <laughs> and, and you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Right. Maybe the deal I'm talking about was in that town. I can't remember. <laughs> I, def I, def I definitely saw I definitely saw a deal recently where they were touting the chicken plant as as the employer, and I just thought you know it just set off an alarm bell for me. Not that there's any. I mean, I think people will probably eat chicken forever, but you know, <laughs> just don't want to be dependent on one employer, right? That's yeah, the, you're 100 percent right. I mean, there's several counties in South Carolina where that is the biggest employer, and then. And then I find it funny too, because I do, I do a fair bit of new construction and anytime I'm doing a new construction deal, the bank, some of the rural banks will look at the proximity to the chicken plants or the chicken growers and be like, ah, we don't want to finance a house that's too close to a chicken area because of the, just the smell, the EPA, the whole deal. So it's funny. <laughs> You've hit home for sure. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you establish your investment criteria? Once you have a location, what other criteria have you established and how did you get to choosing that as like, for example, you mentioned community size of 100 to I think 125 units. What does that look yeah. like and how did you kind of back and, into this? Yeah, it doesn't have to be exactly in that niche, but it's really more like, you know, really once you get up to about 125 units, then you start getting some economies of scale with the staffing. Right? Even 100 is a little difficult. 100 is kind of a weird size, but you want it to be bigger because it's you, you definitely see your per unit operating costs dropping because that labor cost is such a big piece of your budget. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, 125 units or so, you know, at that point you're getting really good property management. You're getting them at a good fee. You know, there's just a lot of economies that you have once you get to a, a property that size. Right. And, and not to say I won't do smaller ones. I have done smaller ones, but I like to do them if they're close to something else I've already got so I can manage it together and try to get some efficiency that way. Because otherwise, you know, you, you just, you know, I could just see to cross the portfolio. Like it's just much cheaper to operate a property that's, you know, 130 units than to operate one that's a hundred units. Yeah. Right. So absolutely. Um, that's one thing. Um, but also you don't want to get too big because then you start competing with the institutional buyers who, you know, are, are looking for, you know, for 5% returns a year and, and they're willing to bid up to that point. So you're, you know, you want to kind of stay below that level, you know, don't get up past 10 million or so in deal size because then you're really getting into competing against people who have a very different expectation. Yeah. Is there any other criteria you have other than like unit size and cap rate that you look at, like maybe year built or like I don't do flat roofs or something like that? I don't care about flat roofs particularly. I've done flat roof properties have been fine. In terms of like year build, that's something that I've changed my perspective on. At first, I uh, was looking at like the 1970s product and all the stuff that mm -hmm. we bought 
was was 1970s stuff. And the issue with that is that those properties are just really getting old, right? And they're the systems are starting to fail. And you know, we definitely ran into some problems with stuff underground, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's in bad shape and it just comes to bite you. So when I start buying again now, you know, what I'm thinking, what I'm looking for is really more recent product. Kind of like the sweet spot is probably your late 90s, early 2000s construction that's ready for a refresh, right? You know, something that hasn't, yeah. it's new enough that it's it's pretty code up to date and it's, the systems are still in pretty good shape. You know, you're not really seeing the, the breakdown of the systems yet. You've got another 10, 20 years to go uh, on those things, but you've got, you know, maybe just sort of a, You've got outdated, you know, amenity packages and you've got, you know, outdated look to the apartment, stuff like that. Those right. that's that's kind of like the sweet spot. Yeah. Like where the color scheme is nineteen nineties and you can bring it to twenty nineteen colors and throw granite in and call it a class B or class A apartment. Yeah, exactly. I mean it is sort of age wise a class B. You probably can't get it to a class A unless you're willing to spend a lot of money on it. But you know, where you can do you know, you're just kinda gonna refresh it, make it bring it up to what what people want right now. And, you know, without the systems yeah. falling apart. I mean, look, you can take it, you can take a seventies building and do that too, right? You can go and, and upgrade the apartment. So they look more modern without even spending a tremendous amount of money. But the problem really is not so much the cost of, of upgrading as the like stuff cosmetic, that you, that it's, com- yeah. it's the stuff that's coming up that you don't expect or, you know, that you maybe you expected it, but just hoped it wouldn't come up. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of really going to whack your, your bottom line. So I, I think, I think the seventies stuff, there's a lot of cosmetic upgrades being done to seventies product now. Mm-hmm. And I think what's coming up for that asset class is, you know, either the complete obsolescence of the properties or them needing real major, major upgrades where people right. are going in and really like replacing the plumbing and replacing, you know, upgrading the electric and like really doing massive, you know, upgrades to the properties to, to modernize them. Cause um, otherwise I don't think they're going to be able to compete as yeah. well. You mentioned looking for opportunities to like refresh the appearance of a community. Are there any other value adds that you look for that you've kind of been surprised at in your experience? I'll tell you one thing that I was really surprised at about how, how well it did was painting the doors on a property. Really? I was really surprised. Yeah. Like we had uh, on the biggest property we owned, we came in and that was kind of like the heaviest value add that we did. We did a lot of cosmetic stuff to the property, a lot of landscaping, a lot of things like that, just to kind of refresh it. You know, we, we redid the, we redid the rental office, you know, did a lot of work to the pool, did a lot of landscaping, but then we had some extra money in the budget and the property manager said, well, why don't you, we think it's a good idea if you repaint the doors. And it was something that I hadn't even thought of, but they said, look, the doors are like, it's like 1970s colors They're dark brown. They're, you know, and I hadn't really, I mean, the whole property was like 1970s style. So I didn't really think much about the doors. I thought like, you can't really yeah. change, you can't, you can't really change the look of this property. Well, I was really surprised. We went and we, we painted them some kind of much more modern, like sort of grayish color and it really looked great. It really looked nice. And I think it really added value to the property when people, when you drove the property, it had a, just a very different look to it. Really? Yeah. A- another thing that I've learned is uh, about rebranding the properties. I 
used to just buy the properties and just continue to operate them as they were. But I, I really think there's a lot of value, and this is a very cheap thing to do, is to rename the property and get new signage. It's a really low-hanging fruit value add. And what it does is it instantly, people notice it, right? And they, they're driving past every day, and all of a sudden one day they see this property's got a new name and it's got this really nice new sign outside. And that signals to them like, hey, something new is happening here. Maybe I'm going to take a look at this apartment that I thought wasn't such a great place. And 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 it, it's great if you have a, you know, negative reviews of the building go away. Yeah, this is <laughs> the, a brand the new. Old, the old building name is, yeah, old building name, there's no such thing, right? So it, that's a really, that's really low hanging fruit that people can, can use to, I, I, I would say like if you have zero budget to do any rehabbing or very little budget and, and there's only one thing to do, yeah, rename the property and put a new sign up is probably the best bang you're gonna get for your buck. What could you tell us about, you obviously research a lot of different areas in the Southeast, I'm assuming. Can you enlighten us a little bit on what what value you've got in, in a team and who you work with and why you work with them and how important they are to you? Because, I mean, you're one guy and I know you can do a lot, but you certainly need some help, I'm sure, from time to time. Yeah, I mean, not only will I tell you sort of who I work with, but I'll tell you who I need to be working with in the future, too, as I kind of change things. So, the you know, the team, the most important piece of your team, I really think is going to be your, your local property management. If you're, especially if you're from outside the market, but you've got to have those boots on the ground. You've got to have somebody who has real local market intelligence and, you know, also who just really understands the cost structure of running a property in that market. Right. So before you talk to anybody else, like before you ever even talk to a broker in a market, you should be talking with property managers and and learning the market from them and and then picking somebody that you're going to work with and you know you can use them for just all kinds of stuff just super helpful but you can you can run your underwriting by them to make sure that your that your cost structure makes sense you know you can double check if you've done your market research on rents you can double check it with them you, you know they could they'll probably just give you what they have they, they should be following the market themselves in terms of rents and rent comps so that's really critical to have on the ground, probably the most critical. Then, you know, other team members, not so critical to have on the ground in the area per se, but obviously you want to have, you know, your legal team that's licensed in the state, wherever, whatever state you're operating in, helps to have your accountant there, not absolutely necessary, but helps to have an accountant who's local. And then you start getting, you know, you need to have contractors that you can turn to for advice about, you know, what, what it's going to cost you to fix up this property. Oftentimes, you know, the management companies will have that expertise too, so you can lean on them. But it's good to have people that you can rely on for for that sort of advice. I'd say that's sort of the basic team. There are other sort of team members that you need to get stuff closed. But in terms of getting property and you know finding property and getting property and running it, that's sort of your essential yeah. team, I'd say. Can you give us maybe a little more on on your property manager? Do you do you vet certain property managers? Just with experiences you've had in the past, just to make sure that their views are as realistic or conservative as yours? So property managers are looking at things from a little different perspective, right? Because they're, I mean, good property managers have in mind making money for their owners, but that's not really what they do, right? They, what, they, what they're really doing is they're trying to keep a property full and they're trying to keep it in rentable condition, right? So it's, you can't rely on them. You've got to be the one who's kind of focused on the bottom line. I mean, they, they should be looking at it, but it's really your job to do that, not 
not theirs. And you have to be on top of them about that. But in terms of like vetting a company, it's really important. There's a, there's a number of things that I've learned through bad experiences that you, that you need to, you know, they're that you the need best ones. to be, a, they're the only ones you learn from. You don't learn from the good experiences. You only learn from the bad ones. Right. So one of the things that I've learned is you really need to have somebody who's local to the market, right? Like not somebody who's nearby the market or who's trying to break into the market or anything else or who you get along with, you know, who's not there. You need to, you really need to have a, a local property manager who has a long history in the market and really knows the market well. And the reason for that, there are a number of reasons, obviously the market intelligence part, but there's also the market reputation piece, right? It's very hard for people from outside the market to hire the right people, right? People aren't going to take a risk, like the best onsite managers are not going to take a risk on some property company they've never heard of before for, you know, so it's, and the vendors, right? The vendors are not going to trust this property management company they haven't heard of before. So you want to have someone who's local and really good, has a good reputation in the market for, for those reasons. Then you want to vet them according to a, a number of, you know, at a very high level, you want to vet them according to a number of criteria. The first being real experience with exactly the kind of property that you're buying, right? So it, it can't just be that they have experience in the market. If they're a company that, mar that you know, basically manages class A, you know, they're, they take over new build properties and they're in lease up and they're just doing class A and they're dealing with the most affluent tenants and the best amenities and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's a very different proposition than a C-class property, right? It's a very different management skill set. Same thing, you know, in, in the other direction, someone who's used to subsidized housing it's a very, very different skill set than managing a C-class market rate property, right? So you want to make sure that that company has the right expertise. And then you also further want to make sure that the people that they staff on the property have that expertise too, right? And kind of everyone who's in the chain of command over your property, so the on-site manager, whoever that on-site manager is reporting to as an asset manager, you want to make sure that those people really understand this asset class. Because if, if they don't, it can really get sideways on you very fast. And that's actually happened to me. So it's, it, this is really critically important. You have to, you have to make sure that, that they're going to, not only do they have the expertise, that they're going to put the right people on your, on your property. And you have to, you have to possibly get in their face a little bit about it. If you think that things are not going the right way, you know, like if, if they're not putting the right people on the property. Yeah. And is that, is an example of that probably like, they're trying to run it as a class A and it's, it's never meant to be a class A They're They should be running it as a class C. Well, I mean, I don't, I guess that's an example. It's hard to imagine that they would try to run a class C property as a class say, like it just wouldn't, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. It's a totally different like tenant base that you're talking about. It's, it's more like the problem I ran into specifically was I had a, a, an onsite manager staffed in a market rate C property whose background was in subsidized housing. And subsidized housing, you don't have to market, right? They have such long waiting lists to get into subsidized housing that no, there's no marketing needed. And But a, a C-class market rate property needs marketing. And if you don't market the property, your occupancy is going to, to drop, right? So we had a really bad vacancy problem in a strong market, which shouldn't happen. And it was all because the property manager never did any marketing, you know, so that's, that's, that's an issue or yeah, just things like that. You know, they have to, they have to be more aggressive. I mean, I could, I could see like the, not, not so much the issue being that 
like a class A manager would try to run a C-class property like it's a class A property. But there's just there are just problems that they wouldn't know how to deal with necessarily. But right? you're going to have a lot more collections issues at a C-class property. You have to chase people more for rent. You know, yeah, there, stuff like that. That if you're if you're used to class A, you know, you're used to people just probably their their rent checks are coming in from, you know, they've they've got it set on autopilot from their bank account. And yeah, they're never writing a check, right? Whereas when you've got a class C property, you've got people who have to go and get money orders from the bank, you know, from the money order place to pay their rent, and they may not have the money or they're very busy and can't get to the money order place or you know, what have you. There's a whole host of reasons why that you might have to chase them. And if you're used to not chasing them and you don't, and you just think, oh, they're just going to come in and pay, then you can wind up with a serious collections problem very fast. You've also got, you know, a C-class property, you're just going to have more problems. You're just going to have, it's a different, it's a different tenant base. So you've got, you know, issues that are associated with people who, you know, let's just say you, there are issues that are going to appear on the property that you're probably not going to have on a class A property where you've got a bunch of, you know, like lawyers and consultants and doctors and stuff living, right? So, yeah, that's great. Can you talk a little bit about where you found like the best ways to find deals so far and like what you're focusing on? Are most of them coming from broker relationships? Or are you going after off market properties or? So, so for me, the sweet spot has always been the off market properties I get from brokers, right? So it's it's like the pocket listings mm-hmm. or, or the deals that the brokers put together. I mean, good brokers will put together deals themselves. But they'll go and they'll they'll say, I've got a client who's looking for a property, and they'll just pick up the phone and start calling owners and say, you know, will you sell? And put a deal together themselves. So I've had good luck with those. I have not I haven't done mailings, you know, I haven't tried to do the direct to owner outreach. Just be, I know people can do really well with deals that way. I know people are successful, but the amount of effort it takes to do that is very, very high. And I also think that it's probably easier to do for smaller properties where the owners yeah. are less sophisticated. Absolutely. But when you're talking about 100, 150 unit properties, you know, even if it's a mom and a pop operator, there's sophisticated people who are running these properties and they know what their properties are worth. Right? You know, Maybe you get lucky and somebody just died and their kids have the building and they don't know what to do with it and they get a letter and they're like, okay, I'll sell. But other than that, for the most part, when you're dealing with the larger properties, you're not you're not dealing with people who like don't know what they've got and are willing to just sell it because they got an offer. And and even if they get distressed, chances are they're gonna go to a broker and say, Go find me a buyer, you know, preferably go find me ten buyers who are gonna bid against each other if on the property. So I haven't gone that way. What what I found to be more effective is once you close a deal in a market, then brokers start bringing you stuff that's off market. You yeah, know? absolutely. We actually had a commercial broker on last week on the podcast, and he shared a tip for how to get pocket listings. And it was as simple as staying in contact and just asking if he has anything that you know might be of interest. Is there anything that you've done or you've seen that has helped you get uh, access to pocket listings, which are, I mean, I, I don't know if hard is the right word, but... Not everyone gets well, them, I mean, obviously. Cl- closing deals is the best way to get pocket <laughs> listings, right? I mean, I mean, if you want to just like put, be really blunt about it, like that's that's the best way. But but listen, there is even if you haven't closed deals, you can get pocket listings. But just like that broker said, it's all about building a relationship with the broker. And you know what I always tell people is, if you're looking at a market 
and let's say let's say you've decided to invest in a particular market like you've done all your research it meets all the criteria you've been down there you've looked at it you're like okay I, this is the, this is the place i want to be the last person you should call is the broker right you should be putting your putting kind of unbeknownst to the broker weaving weaving a web around them so that by the time you reach out to them they have no choice but to call you back they have no choice but to answer and the way that you do that is by getting to know the people who know the broker before you get to know the broker and then getting warm introductions from those people. So, you know, the, the local, the good property managers will know all the top brokers in the area, right? The, the lawyers will know, maybe will know them and the accountants maybe will know them, right? The broker, the, the managers are probably going to be your best source for getting to the brokers, right? So why reach out cold to a broker, right? You're not ready to close the deal anyway at that point, right? Why are you going to waste their time by just you know asking them to send you deals that you can't even close because you don't even have an infrastructure yet, build yourself that infrastructure so that the minute you get a deal you can hop on it, right? And and use the people who are part of that team to get you to the top brokers. And if you do it that way, by the time you get to that broker, you're gonna have you're gonna have like all of the like all the reputation of like the lawyer and the and, and the property manager and all those people that you're working with. That's like all stuck on you now, right? So right. when you go to the broker. They're just going to assume that you can close deals because you came through these other people that they know and trust. They're not going to ask you for proof of funds. They're not going to ask, you know, they're not going to like ask you to prove yourself as legit. And and they're going to start showing you deals right away. Now, obviously, you better close them or you can like burn that relationship very fast. But you're not going to have that problem of like the broker trying to keep you at arm's length because you came in the right way. You came yeah. in a way that 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 built legitimacy for yourself rather than you know, just calling them up cold. So they're like, who, who, who are you? What, you know, why should I talk to you? Yeah, I love that. And that way you have all your ducks in a row so you can close the deal. And you're using, like, if you're using all the top people in town, the brokers are immediately going to assume, okay, you clearly know what you're doing. And they're going to take you a lot more seriously than if you just called them from Lupin and said, hey, I, I want deals, uh, you know, multifamily, office space, houses. Like it, it's much more professional and take you more seriously that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, you have to you have to do it that way. Yeah, I think that's I think kind of a we've been talking about all this together, but yet like being able to execute on that due diligence or already having a lot of due diligence done for that area, so that when you do talk to the broker, you know that you want to move forward or don't want to move forward. So, like you mentioned, you're not burning bridges when you get some under contract or tell them you're going to buy it and then you don't. Like having Having that in place beforehand, I think that's really important. Yeah, and it's, and it's good to have like real criteria in place also, because then when brokers send you stuff that you're not interested in, you can have an intelligent conversation with them that actually builds the relationship as you're rejecting the deal, right? So you you can have a conversation with them about, hey, you know, thanks for showing me this deal, but we're really looking for this other thing and this is why you know this is why the deal doesn't work for me or in fact the brokers so brokers are like simultaneously doing two things like one is you know they're pushing deals out there and they're just trying to make as much money as they possibly can right and they're and they're hoping that somebody's going to overpay for the property but the good brokers also really understand the market and they understand the investor mindset so when you go back to them and say this deal is really i can't this deal doesn't work for me because it's really overpriced or whatever. The good brokers are going to say, yeah, I know, I know. But, <laughs> you know, like, and you're not going to burn the relationship with them, but you're just going to show them that you're not a buyer who's willing to overpay for this asset, right? So 
you can help build that long-term relationship. And eventually the assets are going to be priced better and you want to have that relationship already there and have them know who you are when, when it comes time, you know, when it starts getting harder for them to sell deals, you want them coming to you and that's in that situation. Right. So you can, you can, you can, you can manage the relationship in a way that, that strengthens the relationship, you know, even when you're turning deals down. But yeah. communication is the key. Like, don't just like ignore them, right? Like, look at the deal, underwrite it, decide why, excuse me, why it doesn't work for you, and then and then tell them like, this is why it doesn't work for me. So, like along those lines, when you get a deal that comes across your desk, what are the, some of the things you do initially to vet it against your criteria? Like, are you doing a uh, full underwriting, like pro forma on it, or or what are you doing initially? So. Well, it depends on where the deal is. I mean, if it's a, if it's a place I've never heard of, like literally the first thing I'll do is I'll get on Wikipedia and look at, look at what this yeah. town is or whatever. And, and frankly, like see if the population is growing or shrinking. Right. So if the population is shrinking, I just don't even look on any further. Right. Or if the population is too small, but if it's, if it's a deal in a market that I know, yeah, you know, I'm just like reading the, reading the package, like, like trying to look and see whether this is going to be even worth my going forward with or not before I even get into underwriting. Like, so is it, what part of town is it in? Like, you know, that sort of stuff, right? Then if I get to the underwriting stage, then, yeah, I mean, usually it, I don't know, you can underwrite a deal in like an hour, right? It doesn't take you, as long as you have the right material, right. you got the, if you got the operating statements and you got a rent roll, then you can take a pretty, you can take a crack at, at, at underwriting and see what it's worth to you. And then, you know, if it's, if what it's worth to you is anything close to what you think is being asked for it, then, then move forward, you know, but I think what happens to me more often than not is I'll come up with, with what I think it's worth to me. And like, I, I just know that that's not even, it's not even going to be close to what they want to get for it and probably can, can get for it. So, yeah. And when you get like yeah. the broker's packet. And like they've got their financial projections. Is there anything in there that you very commonly see as you need to double check or run your own numbers on on that part of the performance? I I ignore their numbers completely. I don't think they're I don't think they have any value at all. I think you you just look at the operating statement. But, but there is one thing that I look that I look at, and I'll tell you what it is. So if you know how property taxes are calculated in in that area you can look at their pro forma ta- like the the tax number yeah. that they have in their pro forma and back into what they think they want to get for the property so because they have to come up with a number for that in their pro forma right if they're brokers who are like lazy or whatever they'll just put in the old tax numbers into the pro forma but if they're if they're good brokers and they know like, okay, they've got to come up with a, with a real tax number in the pro forma. And the tax number is going to be based on, you know, taxes are going to be reassessed at sale, right? Yeah. They've got to calculate it based on a sale price. So even though they've got like this unpriced offering and it's like to be determined by the market, they always have a number in mind that they're looking for. And you can back into that number if you know the formula for, for calculating property taxes in that area. So you just take that tax number and you back into the number that they're looking for. And that can tell you whether like this is something you want to bother going for or not, you know, if it's in range of what you think the property is worth or not. I love that. I've never heard of doing it that way. 
Yeah, that can that can help and hurt you if you buy an undervalued. Like in South Carolina is a good example. Some of the counties there they'll reassess its sale, as you mentioned. Yep. If you buy it at a third of the at the current you know appraised value, that's a good help. But you don't want to tell anybody about that. You let them, <laughs> let them keep that tax number on there until you close. Oh yeah, no, I mean you. I mean they're gonna they're gonna use whatever number you know whatever you close at is the number they're gonna calculate your new taxes at, right? So right. so if it's you know. If you're buying at anything above the appraised, the current tax appraised value, then you're going to have a tax increase. So, I mean, I think a lot of people get themselves into trouble because they don't understand how the, the taxes are, are calculated. So they, they use the seller's numbers. Another, another number that gets people in trouble all the time is insurance. Mm-hmm. They, think yeah. they're get the, they think they're going to get the same insurance rate as the seller, which never happens. Usually they don't have the same labor number as the seller. You know, usually your cost structure is higher than the seller in most cases. And I think a lot of people get themselves sideways because of that, because they just assume they can use the seller's numbers. Yeah. On a large community of, let's say like a hundred units, what do you typically budget for property management? So that's going to be a negotiation with the manager, right? I, I've been able to get 4% management fees mm. even on the first deal because I've said like, Hey, we're going to be buying a lot in this market. So give us a good rate now and you'll get our future business. So you can do that. I mean, for a hundred units, you should be able to get 4%, probably not more than five, I think on a, on a hundred unit deal. When you get bigger, you should be getting less. And if you're up at 200, you can, should be getting like 3%. Yeah. But I think I would go, I would seek out 4% at, at, at the max for a hundred units. I think that you can, you can achieve that. Do you ever see a future where you might um, self-manage versus using a third-party manager? I think the circumstances under which that might happen would be if I ever grew the business big enough that I started getting into like big pools of institutional capital where they want you to be self-managing, mm-hmm. right? So, but short of that, I mean, managing property, like property management is a whole different business than asset management. It's a whole different skill set. So... I know lots of people sort of have this idea, and I did too when I started that, like, oh, we'll we'll eventually do self-management. And and I've been talked out of that by people who have tried it. (laughs) And, you know, I think think the only way to make it work is, like, to go buy an existing management company. I don't don't think you – it would be very difficult to, like, start a property management company from scratch without having experienced yourself in that business. Because asset management and property management are, like, totally different skill sets. Right. You brought it up, you know, working or potentially or, you know, a future where you might work with institutional capital. What would that look like to you if, if you did want to do something like that? Just the ease of raising money, yeah. you know, like just just the having, you know, capital sources that have that are very deep pocketed. You know, if you can get into a situation where they really trust you and they, they've worked with you before and basically going to fund everything that you do because you're a proven operator, it's a, it's a great situation to be in, right, without having to go through the the difficult process of raising, you know, millions of dollars in $50,000 chunks, right? It's just a, that's, that's a difficult process. So it's always attractive to get uh, into that institutional space. But then, of course, you know, there's, there's other things that come with it, you know, they can be a lot more demanding. They, they want a different kind of product, you know, so 
there, there's trade-offs that that come with that too. But just certainly the ease of raising capital would be attractive. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I meant. What would be attractive, and I guess what wouldn't be so attractive, and I guess it'd be answering to a lot of different uh, things that you don't normally have to do. I think the level of reporting is probably much much stricter. You know, you have to have a lot more controls in place and probably a bigger a bigger staff and stuff like that that institutional is going to, you know, I, I like, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not totally familiar with what they, what they want. Cause I haven't dealt with them directly yet, but I, I think it's going to be a lot more, more sort of, they want to see a lot more infrastructure than your typical syndicator has got. Right. Yeah. I, I would think the accounting part of it would be a lot more than what most people would be used to as far as, you know, properly audited financials on a very, off on a monthly yeah audited financials and they're gonna want to have like everything marked to market and like all kinds of stuff that as a syndicator you're just not typically doing probably you know things like succession plans and key management and you know they're 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 the ones who are going to be very like your 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 lps and syndications ought to be asking the question what happens if you get hit by a bus right but i think a lot but i think a lot of them don't the institutional players will definitely ask that question and want you to have, you know, preferably a big enough team that if one of that, not, that no one of you is not expendable, right? You know, you should, they all, they want you to all, all be expendable basically. So, right. And this can probably be an entire podcast series, but can you talk a little bit about how you're financing deals and raising capital through what sounds like syndications? Yeah. Well, so the raising, the, the equity piece is all, you know, syndicated, right? It's all, from an investor group that I've assembled over year, you know, over over time, in for, in terms of you know the debt financing, we did. So when I got started, it was a little bit different in environment. Now it's harder, much harder for new investors to get agency debt, even if you had like professional property management on site. It still didn't satisfy the the uh, experience requirements. I, my understanding is that that that's changed, but you know we we started out. The only thing that was available to us was CMBS debt, so the commercial mortgage-backed securities debt, sure. which the advantage of it was, you know, you could lock in very low rates for 10 years. You know, the, the terms are very attractive, but the servicing is just really onerous, and there's no room for any kind of adjustments, and just it's, you know, the, the people who are servicing these loans are, are very constrained, and they have no discretion, basically, right? So... It's very, very onerous to deal with CMBS, and there's a lot of penalties that come with prepayment and stuff like that. So it's really not, to my mind, really attractive debt. It's if if you can't get anything else, then you go with CMBS. But so we did CMBS debt. I've done it both directly to a lender and through a mortgage broker. I find doing things through a mortgage broker to be much better. Just it, worth every penny that you pay in fees to the mortgage broker to to have them take all that work off your shoulders and, and also help you get a better deal in the first place yeah. and go to bat. And they, and they have, they have negotiating leverage with lenders that you don't have as like a, a relatively new syndicator or a small syndicator. You know, you're, they've got relationships with the people who, who were writing the loans and, and they can push back for you and you just can't do that on your own. So when I first started, I was like, I don't want to pay these guys a fee. I'm going to just do this myself. But I, I, I learned quickly that that was, that was very penny wise and pound foolish yeah. going, going through the brokers is just, it's totally worth it. Is there any broker that you'd like to, uh, share? Yeah, no, I, I work, I work with some um, guys down in your neck of the woods at 
they changed, they're now called Bellwether Capital, and I work with a guy named Will Oldham at Bellwether, who's awesome. I, I highly recommend that you reach out to Will uh, if you are looking for debt. You know, they'll only do a million dollars or more of debt. They don't do smaller deals, but if you're if you're up there over that million dollar mark, they've been terrific. And their their execution department is is also just excellent. They they really do a good job with execution. Fantastic. And lastly, like, what are some of the common mistakes you see newer investors when they're trying to purchase their first multifamily community? Gosh, where, where do you start? <laughs> um, well, I'm not, I mean, there's, it, it really depends. Like, are, is there any particular category you're looking for? I mean, there's lots of different that people make mistakes in their underwriting. They make mistakes in like how they try to get deals with. Is was there anything specific that you guys were well, you mentioned, for? you mentioned, uh, you know, falling too hard and believing too much of the, the, uh, current owners financials and not, not, you know, doing your own. So that'd be one that I'm sure is common. Yeah. I guess anything specific to, and we, we've talked a lot about population growth and, and, and getting granular on it. So I don't know anything like, Hey, maybe you should have looked at, you know, maybe it wasn't submeter. Maybe, I mean, something along those lines. You know, it's really not so much that they're, you know, whether it's submetered or not. I mean, all, all these things are just a, they're just a, a number that goes into your underwriting that you, that you have to understand and then, and then bid accordingly. Right. Yeah. So it's not, the, the issue I think is more not knowing how to underwrite, you know, or getting too aggressive on your underwriting in order to make the deal work. Um, you know, not double checking with other people to make sure that you're really on track with it, you know, with like, say like your property manager or what have you. I think, I think believing what's in the OM that you get from a broker is a big problem, like relying on those numbers rather than on the actuals, you know, you, you really have to underwrite based on the combination of the, the actuals and then what your cost structure is going to be based on like your property management and, and all that sort of thing. So I think too much optimism is probably the biggest yeah. problem for, yeah. for a new investor. And I certainly, I did that myself, yep. uh, you know, and I think people just, they, they think it's going to be easy. They think they're going to make a lot of money very quickly. Like they think they're not aware of the traps that they can fall into. So I think those are really over optimism is probably the biggest rookie mistake of all. Yeah. That's what's going through my head too, is it's, it's, it's an easy time to get excited about the investment and you want to be optimistic about it. But I think probably just having like a good network of folks, you can, you know, have shoot holes in it is, is probably very important. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you should be, if you're new, you should be like extra cautious because you're just not, you don't know what you don't know yet. Right. And you need somebody out there who's going to kind of you know, look at what you're doing and, 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 and point some holes in it. You know, I, I have to say though, like I, I've, I've been in the situation, like the new investors need to avoid this, this problem I'm about to talk about. I've had people come to me and say, Hey, Jonathan, would you look at my underwriting? And I'll look at the underwriting and I'll poke holes in it. And they just get angry with me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've just probably saved them millions of dollars, but you know, <laughs> overbidding on something but their response is to get angry with me. And the reason is because they, they came into this with like, they've convinced themselves they found a deal. They're really happy. They think they're going to make a lot of money. And, and they, and then you point out stuff that they have, they didn't, they didn't know, right. They had no way of knowing. And, and I don't know if they feel embarrassed or if they're just, you know, 
pissed because they're you just burst their bubble, you know. But uh, they need to come into it. If you're going to go approach somebody for help, you really need to go into it with a, like uh, some humility, because yeah. chances are when you're starting out, chances are you you haven't found a deal, right? If you're new, maybe you have, maybe you got lucky. But I'm going to tell you, like especially in this market, 99 times out of 100, you don't have a deal. You don't have the deal you think you've got, and you need to be really careful. So. When you're talking to mentors, like go in with a bit of humility and expect to be, expect to learn something. Don't expect to like have them just endorse your your fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. And then before we wrap up, we want to jump into the fire round where we just do uh, quick, short questions. There's four of them. First one is, what's your favorite way to source deals? Brokers. Brokers. What's your favorite yeah. market to invest in? I'd say Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. Is there any particular reason? Yeah, it's it, it's growing really fast. It's um, got a really diverse economy. It's it's got more. It's a bit more affluent than some other parts of the area, mm-hmm. and I just I like it. It's and they have good stakes there. Perfect. <laughs> What's the best piece of, piece of advice you've ever received? Oh my god, I've I've received a lot of good advice, but nothing's coming to mind right now. You're good. We'll add it to the show notes. What's the book you most often give to others? So. This one is a little bit out of the blue. I don't. I guess I don't give it so much, but I recommend this a lot. Um, is the the War of Art oh, by yeah. Stephen Pressfield? This is not a business book per se, but it is just a great book for, especially if you're an entrepreneur, and especially if you're trying to do things on your own, like to help you just sit down and get stuff done. Right? It's it's just just brilliant for that about why you just need to sit down and just do it. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. That sounds great. And then before we wrap up, wrap up, is there anything you want to educate the folks listening about your, your new launch pad? Oh yeah. Well, thanks for giving me the chance to do that. So, uh, as you guys have alluded, I've got a, a program I run called multifamily launch pad. Um, the whole idea behind this program is to try to bring really high quality real estate education to people at a, a much lower price than you get from kind of like your typical real estate guru. So it's a, it's a monthly membership. You can be in for as long as you want or as little as you want. Uh, and it's a very low price point. So if you want to check it out and get on my mailing list, the best way to do that is to go to multifamilylaunchpad.org. Not, not.com. So multifamilylaunchpad.org slash ultimate hyphen checklist. And you can download an ultimate checklist of doing your syndication deals and you'll get it on my mailing list and you can learn all about the, uh, the launchpad program from, from me that way. Perfect. And how else can, uh, our listeners find more about you and follow what you're doing? Uh, the other best place is to join my Facebook group, which is called multifamily investment community. That's free, but it is closed. So you have to answer a couple of questions to get in primarily not to spam the group. So as long as you agree to not spam, you're in, and uh, look forward to it. It's a, it's a great way to get to know me and to you know, just be part of a big community of people who are doing this business. Perfect. Well, Jonathan, we really enjoyed it. We'll add everything in the show notes so people can get to those website URLs really easily, as well as uh, the book you recommended. But thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I had a good time. All right. Take care, Jonathan. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.